All right. You guys ready for the Word of God? I want to welcome everybody. If this is your first time and you're kind of freaked out by the Word of God right now, like, oh my gosh, what am I doing with all these Christians? I want you to know I've been there. I've been there and I survived and I made it through. It was scary, but I'm here alive. We're so glad for you to be here, no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey. We just are so passionate about being a safe place for every person, no matter where they're at on their spiritual journey, to get closer to God and to learn more about who he is. So thank you for joining us. All right, so this is where we're at. Just to give you some context, we are in a series called Salt and Light, Daring to Follow Jesus, and we're using this series to explore the purpose, the values, and the core practices of our church. So if you're new to our church, this is going to be a great chance for you to get to know more about us. And as we go in um, to this passage today, I want to give you a bit of context. Last week, we looked at Matthew 5, and we were looking at Jesus' iconic teaching about salt and light, calling us the salt and light of the world. And we talked about who we, what our purpose is as a church and as individuals who follow Jesus. This week, we're looking at our values as a church. Now, values, everybody has them. You've got them. If you're 10 years old, if you're 60 years old, we all have them. Values are the basic and fundamental beliefs that shape the way we live, the way we do friendship, the way we work, and the way we do life. And at our church, we have three groups of values. And I want to put up on the screen a triangle that kind of gives you, no, go back one. Yeah, there we go. So we have values around the way we do relationship with God and the way we engage in relationship with each other as a community. Because we are a family, a family bound not by blood, by our blood, but by the blood of Jesus and by the love of God. And then thirdly, values around the way we relate to the world, the world outside the church. This week in particular, we're going to zero in on the top part of that triangle, God, the way we relate to God. And I want to just lay out our values for you. So as you get to know us, you're going to see what we're about. Number one, we value in relationship with God, the mercy of God, the truth of God, God's rulership, intimacy with God, brokenness or spiritual humility. And then lastly, spiritual passion, or in other words, wholehearted commitment. Now, I don't know if you can tell by looking at these values, but there's two categories divided three in one and three in the other. The first three are about God and the way he approaches us. The second category are the values we have in the way we respond to God and, you know, intimacy and humility. Next week, we're going to get into our response. This week, we're going to focus in on how God approaches us and how we understand God's presence and activity in our life. And to do that, I want you to know we're not drawing this stuff out of thin air, okay? This is coming out of Jesus' life. And so to help you see that for yourself, we're going to look at Luke chapter 7. So you can open up your Bibles or follow on the screen. Here we go. Luke 7, verse 36. We're going to look at I want you to be paying attention to God's truth, where you see God's mercy, and how you see God's leadership in this story through Jesus. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, 
and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Let's pause. I want to invite you at this moment. We're going to see Jesus respond. If you're able and you're comfortable, join me and let's stand together as we just look at Jesus' response to this moment. If you're not able to stand, don't worry. Keep seated. Verse 40, and Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? And Jesus said to the woman in front of everybody, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is God's word to you today. Go ahead and grab a seat. Come on, what a passage. Now, this encounter with Jesus in Simon's home, it illustrates for us how God approaches a relationship with us. Secondly, to put more emphasis on it, this passage illustrates how God is approaching his relationship with you right now in your life. Good to see an old friend. Hey there. He is the one who initiates in our life. And when he does, I think we have mixed ideas about what God is like, and we're going to get to that. But what we see in Jesus is the definitive answer. When God comes in your life, this is how he approaches us. God approaches us with both truth, truth and mercy because we cannot follow Jesus without both. We need both God's truth and God's mercy to be transformed by him. And we're going to talk about the impact and the role of both of these dynamics from God in our life. Let's start with God's truth. Now, to talk about God's truth, I want to go back to the passage. All right, so let's go back. Look at this moment again. I want to rewind to this moment. All right, when the Pharisee, verse 39, who had invited him saw this, he wasn't moved like, wow, isn't Jesus awesome? Look at how loving. Look at, look at this. No, no, look at this. When he saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. I want you to engage in a little kind of imaginative exercise with me. I want you to imagine 
you're at your home and you hear a knock at the door. Now, days like today, if someone comes to your door that you didn't personally set up an appointment with, it's kind of a shock, right? It's rare that we just show up at each other's house. Hey, I was just in the neighborhood, you know? Usually if someone's at your door, it's because someone's trying to sell you something. But I want you to imagine you hear a knock at the door. You're imagining a salesman, but when you get to the door, you see Jesus on the other side. I want you to imagine for a moment seeing Jesus at your front door right now in your life just as it is. I want you to picture Jesus is at your front door. You are dressed just as you are right now. Your life is as it is right now, and your home looks like it did when you left to get here to church. And if it's anything like my home, when I had little kids, you got a food hanging from the ceiling, you got Cheerios all over the ground, and you just, you know, it's mayhem. It's mayhem. So just imagine Jesus now, right now, is at your front door. And I want you to imagine that he wants to come into your house and have a conversation with you. Where in your home would you sit with Jesus? Where would you take him? Would you take him, like, into your kitchen and sit at the bar, you know, of your kitchen counter? Would you sit in your living room? Would you, where would, would you push him outside? No, Jesus, you don't want to see what's in there. <laughs> Let's just go outside and sit on the front porch or at a table out in front? Where would you take him and sit? Now, I want you to imagine where you would take him. And now, I want you just to imagine this moment right here, okay? Imagine the moment when he, you and Jesus are face-to-face looking at each other and you feel the full weight of all his attention on you right now. Now, he's looking at you. Now, I want you to ask yourself this. What do you imagine Jesus is thinking about you and your life right now? What do you imagine he feels about you right now? Okay, listen to this. Psalm 139 has this amazing scripture. It says this, Lord, you know everything there is to know about me. You are so intimately aware of me, Lord. You read my heart like an open book. God knows you, your life. He sees it all. He sees it as clearly as he can read Simon's thoughts about that woman. He sees your life. Notice in this passage, it's all about how Simon sees the woman. And this brings into the idea of how God looks at us, how others look at us, how we see ourselves, the truth about who we are. Now, when you look at the way Simon sees this woman, how would you describe the way Simon looks at this woman? Take a moment and just share with someone, just quick, quick five seconds, describe in one word how Simon is looking at this woman. Go ahead and just share briefly. Go ahead. Give me a water break. Come on, real quick. Okay, anyone want to give a shout out right over here? Anyone over here? Shout out. What do you see? How does he see the woman? How, what, do you, what do you see going on? Condescending. Condescending, yes. Here? Judgmental and what? Huh? Huh? Oh, contempt and judgmental. Over here? Anything over here? Sinner, yes, right there, boom. He just sees, oh, I'm going to come back to that one. You? Disgust. D- yeah, disgust. Disgust, superior, contempt. He sees her as a sinner. Now, 
when Simon sees this woman, he, get this, this is so important, he only sees her through her sin. In other words, he only sees her through her failure, her weakness, and her imperfections. He only sees her through that. That is the totality of how he sees her. But Jesus, Jesus sees so much more. Jesus sees the whole truth about our life. But that doesn't mean he overlooks or airbrushes our sin. Look at verse 47. In verse 47, it says this. It says, therefore I tell you, verse 47, her many sins. Notice that word many. That Yeah, there's actually a Greek word in the text. It's not being made up. It's right there, and it's used all over the New Testament to describe large quantities of something. When he looks at her, notice Jesus doesn't say, yeah, I kind of see that she doesn't have it all figured out. He doesn't say, oh, you know. He's not airbrushing her life. He's like, yeah, I see her many sins. He sees the whole truth about our life. He sees everything. He sees the good, the bad, and he sees the ugly. But notice, there's something different about the way that he looks at her sin and the way Simon does. And how do you see the difference It's in the way she responds to Jesus' view of her and in the way she responds to Simon. Huge difference. Jesus sees our sin, and it's crucial to understand that. It's crucial to understand when Jesus looks at us, he sees the whole truth. He sees our weaknesses. He sees our failures. He sees it in our thought life. He sees it in the area of our motives. All the effort we put on, you know, to come out into the world to look nice, right? We want people to see the best part of us. Jesus sees it all. When we dress up our, action, our motives with good actions, he sees the motive as well as the action. This is so crucial that we understand about God that when he looks at us and loves us, it isn't without looking at the whole truth of our sin. Jesus looks at us, and it's not to condemn us, but to forgive and free us. Listen to this. Without God's truth of what sin is, we are hopelessly lost. And in today's culture, there is a loss of faith in absolute truth. It is hard to look at our own faults and weaknesses, and it's hard to let God look at it. And so the way we start engaging with the word of God is, I don't know about you, but pretty soon you start kind of like, well, that makes me feel uncomfortable. Have you ever read anything in here? And it's like, oh, that's a little, oh, that's intense. <laughs> you know, whoa, that was pretty harsh. Like maybe that verse, and he saw her many sins. Oh, no, you didn't, Jesus. No, you didn't see that. Someone just added that. Listen, this is so crucial. Look, in our culture right now, in order to feel loved, there's an attempt to airbrush the truth. And I want to put up a statistic. The loss of absolute truth is reflected in this statistic around this question, among others. The question is, whatever, um, in, in terms of how do you define absolute truth? And the question is, do you agree with this statement or not? In defining absolute truth, do you agree that whatever is right for your life or works best for you is the only truth you can know. Okay, now get this response. People 58 to 76 years old, 
Only 47 agreed with that. And they go, no, that can't be right. But get this, you go a little bit younger, 20 to 38, 74% agreed that the only truth you can know is what is right for your life and works best for you. Do you see that? That's a, that is a gap of 27%. Now, let's be honest about this. Number one, the longer you've had to live with your life, the more you know that's just not true, right? You've had more time with yourself to try out your theories and go, well, that didn't work. And when you're a little bit younger, you're a little bit more cocky about your views of reality. Are you with me? I mean, I, I remember when I, my wife and I were first married, I thought I looked amazing. We were going to a wedding. I was dressed up in my best shirt until my wife gave me her perspective. I was absolutely convinced this is right for me because I feel the most comfortable in my favorite shirt. And she's like, you know, I don't know that the shirt that's held together by a safety pin is the right shirt for this wedding. And believe it or not, rather than thanking her, I'm like, gosh, babe, you're so right. You just saved me from abject humiliation. Let me go get a better shirt. Can you help me? I got defensive. I got frustrated. I'm like, hey, I am 28 years old. Don't you think by now I've learned to dress myself? I don't need you to be my mom. It didn't go so well. It didn't go well. I even turned around to her and go, well, look how you're dressed. Yeah, yeah, I don't do that anymore either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the dudes are like, dude, that is a 28-year-old. That is a 28-year-old. <laughs> no offense to you 28-year-olds. Look, you guys are much smarter than I was then. All that to say is we have a sense of what's right and true because it feels good to us, but sometimes we're not seeing the whole truth. And that's true about people at different stages of life. Reality is what smacks you in the face when the way you thought things were going to go don't work out that way. But there is something happening in our culture where our view of truth is shifting. That is happening, and you can sense it. That's, and the Bible anticipated this, this idea that truth is whatever feels right for us. Come on, there's no one in this room, no one, the most staunch Bible-believing Christian that doesn't feel some attraction to that idea. There's something appealing about it, right? Are you with me? Wouldn't life be easier if we were always right and everybody else was always wrong? <laughs> I mean, come on. Come on. Just, if you can't relate to that, then you've never been in a friendship or any kind of relationship, you know? <laughs> Listen to what the Bible says about this, anticipating this reality. It says this, 2 Timothy 4.3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. All right, and the Bible saw this coming, that we would just go look for people to tell us what we want to hear. There's a real challenge, and for us as believers, this is written by Paul to Timothy about the believers in the church. There's a challenge for us as believers to not want to let a preacher tell us anything that doesn't fit with what we've already learned and what we feel comfortable with. And that is a major challenge for us as believers because if salt has lost its saltiness, then what good is it? And there's a challenge for us as believers to water down the truth because it makes us uncomfortable or we're not familiar with it. I remember trying to talk to students about God's justice when they would be at UCSD. We'd have students coming in, raised in the church, and we would talk to them about God's justice. And I would have students literally tell me, God doesn't care about justice. I'm like, wait a minute, are you trying to tell me that it's not in the Bible at all? And they're like, yeah, I never, my pastor never talked about it. I go, oh. And you know, 
there you are, Bible gateway. Let's just type in justice. Like, justice is the foundation of your throne. And these students were like, I'd never heard this before. Stuff like that. Now, here's the thing that's so important about this, is that as God's salt and light, we have to go into the world and be with people, loving people, but we have to hold the truth of God when it makes them uncomfortable, and even when it makes us uncomfortable, it has to start with us. The thing is, it's hard to face the truth of our own weakness, our failures, and our wounds. But without a diagnosis, there's no hope of healing. I remember my grandfather, he um, started having a bleeding problem, and my grandmother was trying to get him to go to the doctor, and he refused to go. And he just convinced himself, no, if I just change my diet, it will go away. If I just ignore it, it will get better. But that felt comfortable to him, but it didn't work. In the end, the thing that hurts me the most about my grandfather's passing was that had he gone in soon enough, he could have gotten his cancer taken care of before it spread. There, it's dangerous to ignore truth just because it makes us uncomfortable. Jesus looks at her, and though he sees her many sins, that is not the whole truth about her. But the truth is, when we have no confidence in God's mercy, we can't face the truth, now can we? It's hard. So let's talk about God's mercy here. God's mercy, verse 44. Look at this. When, then, verse 44, he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I love the emphasis on that. That's my own idea there. But I imagine when he's looking at this woman, he says, do you see this woman? The emphasis is on, oh, you don't think I see her? The question is, do you? Do you see her the way I see her? I think deep down inside, the reason why it's hard to face our weaknesses and our failures and our struggles, our sin, is because we're afraid that I think deep down we look at our failures the way that Simon looks at this woman and we are afraid that God looks at our life the same way. I think we all struggle with that. And you know how you know? Anytime when someone challenges you about maybe something you did that wasn't right or hurt their feelings or could have been better, to do any of us go, yes, bring it on. I want to get better. I want to improve. No, every one of us is like, oh, oh. And at our worst moments, we deflect, we defend, and we push it off. Why? Because we're afraid. We're afraid that that fault will define our life. But look at Jesus here. Do you see this woman? Do you see her the way I do? So now here we are ready. How does God see you? How does he look at you? Let's start by how he looks at this woman. I want you to turn in pairs and just share how would you describe the way that Jesus looks at this woman? Just one or two words. Go ahead. Ten seconds. Go ahead and share briefly. Go ahead. All right, anybody over here? Anybody over here? Mercy. Mercy. Anybody over here? What? Clean. Clean. Yes. Clean. Yeah. 
potential. Yeah, he sees not, he doesn't define the woman by the moment he sees where God is taking her in her future. Come on, he sees our whole life, the whole truth over here. What? Love. Love, absolutely. Listen to this. Listen to these words, love. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, get this, while we were still, what? While you're still a sinner. While you, and what does that mean to be a sinner? It means you are living your life by your own rules and ignoring God's leadership in your life. It is trying to live your life and bring fulfillment to your life without God's help. In a nutshell, that is sin. It is doing your life your own way without God. You, you with me? That's it right there in a nutshell. And what he's saying is while you are still doing your life without God, he loves you. Now, this is powerful. God doesn't need us to get our life together to love us. Get this. Your behavior has nothing to do with God's love for you. I want you to let that sink in. God's love for you has nothing to do with your behavior. When you're having a great day, he loves you. And when your day is awful and you've been rude and selfish and edgy, he loves you. This the other day, with, I was, we had come to the end of a long day, driving around with our, our kids' places, and my wife at the end of the day and I had a conflict. And she said, Ryan, I want to meet you upstairs in the room. I'm like, oh, okay, here we go. So we're up in the room, and she starts to lay out, hey, I think you've been edgy with, edgy with me all day. What's going on? And I was just like, I haven't been edgy. What are you talking about? Yeah, it was something like that. I don't know what you're talking about. I go, no, seriously, explain it to me. And so she started to lay it out. Boom, 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 boom. Now, you better believe everything in me wanted to go and wanted to like justify why it had been. Well, you did this. Well, you did this. But as I just sat there, I was like, she's right. I have been edgy. I've been short. I've been kind of barbed like a porcupine all day with her. I just looked at her and I said, I am so sorry. You're right. <laughs> she's just like, well, what did I do? I go, it doesn't even, no, nothing. It doesn't matter. I've just been edgy. I have been rude to you. I've been inconsiderate. I am so sorry. And you know what she did? She just said, you're out of the bedroom. You're sleeping downstairs. No, she did not. <laughs> she did not. So don't worry about us. She just said, I forgive you. I forgive you. And I love you. God just sees all of these things and he loves us. Simon is looking at all the reasons why God could never love her. And I think some of the, way, some of the times we do that about ourselves. We look at all the reasons why we can't love ourselves. And by loving ourselves, I think fundamentally it means accepting that at the core of your identity, you are beloved. You are God's beloved. The core of your identity is a loved person. And I think we get hungry to find that love from other people, to earn and, and impress other people because we're not deep down confident that we're really loved. If people knew this about me, if people knew that about me, I don't know that they would love me. Listen, this is so important. 
God's truth always leads to God's mercy. Any, any version of God's truth that's not leading you to become a more merciful person is not God's truth. You might have the right doctrine. You might be theologically accurate, but God's truth is not about information. It's a spirit. It is the spirit that says, I am Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And when you hold God's truth, it always leads to mercy. And there's a challenge for us as followers of Jesus to hold God's truth and not become judgmental. It's hard to love sometimes other people when they're not living according to God's truth. There's this, it's almost this fear of a tacit approval of their life. If we're merciful and loving to people who are not living according to God's truth, we're worried that we're supporting and you know, uh, condoning their life. And that is just, you don't even see Jesus worried about that. The other snag for us is to go out and to love people means we have to hide the truth. We have to airbrush it. And and we start to compromise on the truth of God because we don't want to alienate people from us. And yet, when you hold them together, it transforms our lives. For some of us, we are tempted to whitewash and water down the truth of God. Others of us are tempted to minimize God's mercy because we think it's up to us to help the other person know that they are wrong and that our scowl, our stern withdrawal and quiet resistance is going to lead them back to God's love and truth. Come on now, more than ever, the world needs people who can go out into the world and hold God's truth full of God's mercy. Without truth, there can be no mercy. Why? Because there's, no, there's nothing at fault, right? You don't have to like apologize to somebody if they did nothing wrong, which is why we don't want to admit we did anything wrong because we don't want to admit we need forgiveness. It's this. It's mercy without truth. It's sentimentalism. It's not real and true. It's Instagram. <laughs> you know, where everybody's happy and everything is great. Can you imagine a movement of people? This is me having the worst day of my life today. Oh my gosh, I was so rude right there, praying for forgiveness. No, it's always like, I am amazing. Look at this amazing trip. Look at what I have accomplished. I am so awesome. Look at me dance. Everybody wants to show their dance moves. I don't know what's going on. (laughs) But listen, and without mercy, there can be no truth because there's no safety. And that is, truth without mercy is legalism. I don't want to invite the band to come on out. And as the band comes out, here's the point. God's truth always leads to his mercy. The more you're getting to know, the God, know God, the more you're coming into the light of his truth, the more your weaknesses, your failures, your shortcomings, they get exposed. Just like in any human relationship. The more they know you, the more they know the good and the bad and the ugly about you. But the closer you get to God, even though all of your faults, your sin is being exposed, God is pouring his love into every one of those places where you need it. And the more you get to know the unconditional love of God, you cannot know the unconditional love of God if you're always trying to hold out your best in front of him. When you can't be honest about the errors of your life that need forgiveness. When you can't be honest about the errors of your life 
where there's sin, where you need forgiveness, when you can't just throw your lot in with the rest of us and say, hey, I have sinned too. The Bible says this, look at Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all in it together. And when we can't be honest about those areas of our life, you can't experience the unconditional love of God. To you, his love is still conditional and you are still carrying the burden of having to be perfect, have it all together to convince everyone around you and yourself that you're worth being loved, that you are successful, that you are somebody. The truth sets us free from that burden and it sets us free to be loved and it sets us free to love others. That, my friends, is what we Christians call the gospel. As we go into this song, I want to invite you to reflect where are you in need of a fresh filling of God's mercy and love for you? Where is there some truth in your life that God wants to bring to your attention not to condemn you, but to heal you, to set you free, to bring you home? To the Father. As many of you guys know this story, I have been um, searching for a house, but with my wife for so many years, there was this moment where um, a friend of mine went to help us because he had some kind of special knack for real estate. And uh, so we were looking at a house and we came out of the house and my wife and I asked him, so what do you think? And he looked at how much money we had, you know, in savings and he said, well, tell you the truth, you have, ha- you have enough money for half a house in Encinitas. That was the truth. But then he looked at us and he said, my wife and I have been praying and we feel God leading us to go in with you on the other half and we want to help you with the other 50%. That is how God is with you. You know, the Bible says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That isn't you're a terrible person or you're some awful creature. It is that your life can never attain the glory it was created for alone without him. That is the truth. And sin is the attempt to live the life that we were made for without his help. It leads to pride, selfishness, greed. Why greed? Because you're so afraid of not having enough. You're not going to trust God and be generous. You've got to get as much as you can to take care of your needs because you're not living with an awareness of the abundant goodness that God has for you. So you live tight-fisted. The truth of the matter is you were made for glory. You were made to share in his glory. You were made to share in his eternal glory. But there's, a, there's a, a glory that your soul hungers for that it can never reach with your intelligence, your success, your efforts alone. That is not a curse on you. That is a holding up of your dignity as a child of God. It is a curse to live your life thinking you've got to do it all on your own by yourself. That's the curse. And the truth of God sets you free from that. You are not made to do it on your own. You are made to do it with your Father in heaven who loves you. 
but you gotta be honest. It comes a moment where we're not perfect. We don't have it all figured out. You gotta be honest with where you need his help, where God is allowing you to be in touch with your need for him, to be honest about the sin in your life, the ways in which you need God's help. Some of you guys have never done this in your life. You've never accepted Jesus as your savior, ever. The truth of the gospel is that we, we all have sin, every one of us has needs God's help. That's all that it means. Admitting you want Jesus in your life is admitting you need God's help. And if you've never asked God to come into your life to help you and to forgive you for trying to do it on your own, you can do that right now. Wherever you're sitting right now, like this woman, I want to invite you just to admit you need God's help. It's a humbling thing. Yes, but that's how it starts. It, it starts by being humble. You can be like Simon and pretend like you're, you've got it all together, or you can be like this woman and admit, I don't have it together. I need your help. Where do you want your life to go? Do you want to carry the weight of having it all figured out in perfectionism, or are you ready to say, God, I can't do it without you? And if that's you, right now, wherever you're sitting, I want to invite you to just stand up. I know it's crazy. It's crazy. But by standing up, you're saying, God, I need your help. I can't do this without you. And if you can't stand, you can raise a hand. Come on. God bless you. Come on. Come on. Woo! 25 years ago, I was in a room, stay standing, just like this. And when I stood in front of that room of a thousand people, I was like, oh my gosh, God, what are people thinking of me? But it's in these moments where no longer is your life defined by what others think of you. Your life is now defined by what your father thinks. And today you're being told what he thinks of you. He loves you and he has created you for his glory. That's what he thinks. And his love is greater. His mercy is greater than any fault, weakness, or sin or failure that you have done or that has been done to you. The love of God is now the defining truth of your life. And if you need that, you stand up right now. Come on, get some of that. If you want to stand up right now and live your life free, then join us. You're not doing what we all haven't had to do at a certain point. Now, if you're standing, I want you just to pray. Actually, if you're standing, I want those sitting next to you just to stand real quick with them and put a gentle hand on the shoulder. Gentle hand, gentle hand. Just light, not too close. You know, don't get too close. But let's just pray. This is God's hand on your life. Pray this prayer out loud with me. Jesus, I need your help. Say it out loud. Jesus, I need your help. Forgive me for trying to do it on my own. I freely admit I need your help. Fill me with your love. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And do in my life what I could never do on my own without you. Lead me into your glory in this life and in the life to come. Come on now, in Jesus' name. Come on, woo!